Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Watt Carbon Podcast. This is McGee Young, along with Kelly Littleton. Um, we're super excited to be here today. Um, we're welcoming in Doug Middleton, the head of business development from Leap. Uh, Kelly, I know that you're excited to talk about a few newsy things happening in the world. Um, it's great to you know get a chance to kind of catch up on a regular basis and and track all of the interesting things that are going on. Um, you have a particularly nerdy thing that's been on your night. Now, this is probably because you your dad is an is a is an ashtray guy and you're an architect. But tell me what caught your eye this week in terms of exciting exciting new developments in the world of of building decarbonization. Yeah, very exciting. The uh, I it's funny I call my dad the architecture police. So the architecture police did it again. Um, we they finally Ashray finally published the standard two twenty eight, which is the method of evaluating zero net energy and zero net carbon building performance. Um, I'm just excited at a top level that it's here and there's this kind of concise effort to define these things and start talking about them and talk talking about how we calculate them and what we're actually, um, you know, doing with these calculations and what we mean. And um, it's, uh, it's kind of funny and going against the grain here, but it feels like a good first stab. Uh, <laughs> it feels sacrilegious to say um, being the blood of a, of a ASHRAE theater, <laughs> but um, there, there are, are some nuggets years that later, I'm really excited about. Uh, and, still trying um, to figure out how to decarbonize buildings. <laughs> Sorry, there's a lag there with the timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's all good. You cut out there for a minute. This is part of the beauty oh. of podcast report uh, recording is uh, internet connections. You know, can be a, a little bit of a dicey thing. That's okay. Uh, yeah, you were saying that this this feels like a good first step, and I and I said, yeah, a first step. Twenty years later. You know, after we first started working on this stuff, it was like, "Hey, maybe we should have some standards for what a true net zero building uh, would would constitute." Better late than never, I suppose, um, and yeah. good to take that first step. But gosh, isn't that um, doesn't that feel like a, a problem that we should have solved already? In, exactly. In but nevertheless, celebrate, celebrating it as a victory, and um, yeah, onward and upward from here. So amazing. Ooh. Well. Not a moment too soon. Um, I, of course, am attracted to all of the doom and gloom articles that that show up out there. And I keep seeing this chart uh, popping up on Twitter, which is tracking the average ocean surface level temperature of the water. And as you would expect, um, it's, you know, on average, our oceans are getting warmer. Uh, but this year, the um, the distance between the temperature this year and all previous years is um, nothing short of astonishing. Um, so as, uh, and, and interestingly enough, the average ocean temperature peaks um, in the spring. And, I, and I'm not sure exactly why this is um, you know, relative to the way that the earth is rotating on its axis or, you know, what's, you know, the Southern hemisphere is, is hot, hotter maybe. I, I have no idea, but nonetheless, um, the numbers that are being reported out for the ocean surface temperatures are uh, astonishingly high and maybe a harbinger of El Nino conditions uh, forming in the Pacific, but um, yet another indicator of the reason why we're really working so hard to um, accelerate decarbonization of our society generally, but 
in particular with respect to buildings. Now, building decarbonization, you know, of course, Kelly is representing represents 40% of emissions. Uh, this is widely considered to be the low-hanging fruit. But most people, when they think of building decarbonization, think of maybe solar panels getting clean electricity into a building or electrifying it. Um, you might put in a, a heat pump to replace a, a gas you know, furnace or a gas water heater. We think about our stoves uh, electrifying uh, cooking, maybe even industrial processes electrifying those. But there's this other kind of you know piece of the puzzle that oftentimes gets overlooked. And it's called a bunch of different things, uh, demand flexibility, sometimes demand response, sometimes. Um, but it's the ability for a building to coordinate its energy consumption um, to the grid or to the production of clean energy elsewhere, um, and, and maybe even to orchestrate that consumption so that it complements consumption or production from other buildings. And a lot of folks uh, will use the term a virtual power plant uh, to mm. describe this constellation of resources that are all effectively working together, but they're all on the demand side. They're all users of electricity or maybe small producers of electricity. And most folks who are deep into this say that this is the critical piece to actually achieving zero carbon energy systems is mm -hmm. that you, we're never going to by itself by ourselves you know the sun is too intense in the middle of the day and we have too little electricity that um, we can you know possibly use in the middle of the day and, and too much need to use electricity in the evening to just you know kind of like build renewables and hope for the best that there has to be some more orchestrated way of, of um, managing uh, the consumption of energy within our buildings to get to that full decarbonized state. So I'm excited to, to, to bring Doug Middleton into the conversation today, who's the head of business development at LEAP, which was one of the pioneers in creating a platform for demand response, uh, for connecting buildings to the grid and helping them to monetize their participation in demand response events. So to take a kind of typical example, in the evening time in California when it's warm and our natural gas peaker plants are really revving up to uh, produce enough, enough electricity to power everybody's air conditioners, there are some buildings who don't really need to use energy during that time, um, who may be shutting down for the night anyway, but who for whatever reason will typically leave their systems running. Uh, they might leave their HVAC running. They might keep their computers on. They don't really need to. And so they can they can opt in to reducing their consumption consumption during those times of day when the grid's otherwise taxed. And, and them not using energy is cheaper than going and paying for more production, definitely more environmentally friendly than going and paying for more production from a natural gas peaker plant. And so what LEAP has pioneered is a way for lots of buildings to connect their systems into the grid to be given signals to say, hey, this is a good time for you to cut back on your on your um, energy consumption. Now, Doug, uh, welcome to the podcast. I hope I just did leap justice there in describing uh, what it is you guys do. Is that a fair characterization of how demand response works? Yeah, I think so. I think you will. A, thanks for having me on the podcast. Excited to be here. Uh, B, I feel like you 
had my spiel, I'm good to go. So I can just bow out now. But I, I guess if I was to kind of add some additional comments, right, I really like the historic view, start historically, right? Whereas this command and control, where the easiest way to match up supply and demand was just continue to put in supply, right? Until you met demand. And what that meant is you build lots of large scale power plants all around. So no matter what time, no matter how much demand there is, you could always turn on another power plant to meet it. And that makes sense, right? It's easier to manage a hundred individual large sites than tens of thousands or millions of small sites. Well, as the you know computers and intelligence and automation have gotten better and better, right? There's finding a balance. Demand response is not the only solution, right? There's renewables, there's batteries. So I'm very much a proponent of a little bit of everything. But if there is ways now that you can also leverage demand and adjust demand to make it easier to match supply and demand, why not leverage that? Especially when it can come at you know, no carbon cost as well as low or lower cost than building new power plants. And so demand was now kind of like bringing leap into the picture here. Demand response has been around for a long time. There's been direct load control switches on HVAC. There's been programs where you call up, you know, a, a diaper facility and they shut down a whole diaper production line to reduce load during emergency conditions. Mm -hmm. What leap now is doing though, is moving towards a platform that provides broader access, both from a larger geographic scale. So instead of my utility is doing this and I go 10 miles down the road and another utility has different rules is we're trying to bring one interface into that. So it makes it easier for larger companies and larger groups of people and business owners to participate, as well as bring a temporal scale instead of this up and down. It's really hard to build this into your core business or how you operate your home or operate devices if it's changing every year. And so by bringing some consistency and some economic, uh, you know, values, you can all of a sudden create a marketplace around demand response and make it a more viable resource in the overall program stack. Uh, so, these, so these guys but, aren't doing this out of the goodness of their heart though, right? They're, they're ex firmly expecting to get paid for shutting down their operations. Is that correct? Exactly. You know, and, and we see a variety of reasons. Uh, yes, right. Somebody is doing something. Uh, there's going to be some typically an opportunity cost, especially in that traditional demand response. If I'm not operating my diaper facility, I'm not making diapers. I can't sell those. So I need to have an economic decision of what should I get paid to do that? Uh, you talk about somebody maybe reducing or increasing the temperature in their home a little bit on their thermostat. Well, there's some opportunity costs, so there should be some payment for that kind of adjustment. And so it's all about balancing. That's why I'm not saying demand response is the only solution, but if the other option is burning more fossil fuels and it costing a hundred dollars to do that, if somebody's willing to accept kind of reducing their load for $50, why not find the most economic solution to that? And then we can talk about as well. Then you layer on the, you know, associated environmental be benefits as well as the community benefits, right? No one really wants a natural gas power plant in their backyard. I've never met anyone, at least. Uh, most people don't even want solar or wind in their backyard, let alone a generating plant. So, you know, while economics tends to be a driving force in some of these decisions, especially for the businesses we work with, we're seeing more and more interest in some of those environmental and societal and community benefits. And they're really leaning into that in terms of how they, you know, approach whether it's shareholders or the end use customers about participating in these types of programs.
So if you can get paid for your demand response over time, in a way, that can help pay for something like putting in a battery in your house, right? Where if I, I want the battery because it's going to be great backup for when the power goes out. But if I can kind of offset some of those costs by a lot making that battery available to the grid during all those other times in which the power is just just fine, but it's just kind of expensive, I don't really see the difference in my own electricity, right? I'm still there, lights still come on, but the grid really benefits. So it feels kind of like a win-win in that case. Yeah, no, and I just had a conversation yesterday with someone about this. You know, we often talk about demand response as supporting the grid and decarbonization, but it's also good for individuals. It's good for businesses. It, exactly that reason. If you're looking to buy storage for resiliency or managing your own, uh, you know, bill costs for your utility bill costs, well, this is a way to get additional value to buy down potentially the ongoing cost of maintaining that system. It could be used to buy down the upfront cost. You know, the reality is storage is expensive. Not everyone has twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to buy it. And so, if you are willing to, hey, sure, leverages for grid support in addition to my resiliency and all my other benefits, and that can make it more affordable for more people. I think that's a win-win. And then, same thing from a, a business perspective, right? This isn't just something that they're going to sell to their end use customers as here's an additional value stream you get from using my product, but they can actually leverage some of this to buy down the same thing, the CapEx, they can use this as a way to get margin in a different way. And so, especially given the tight economic conditions we're seeing from the macro environment, finding ways to leverage the inherent flexibility of the products that are being bought and sold right now uh, to A, better the grid, so lower overall costs, lower impacts to the environment plus support your business, I think is is pretty impactful. Amazing. So if, if uh, Kelly's going to you know get her apartment going with um, all the newest and greatest gadgets, uh, she's you know looking at one of those. Have you seen these these um, stoves these that that are battery that come with a battery installed? The yep. Channing Street Copper is making some of these and they can also, you know, be grid interconnected, like, can all of this stuff work on the Leap platform? Are you guys sort of set up to basically handle any of these new devices that are coming online? Yeah, great question. You know, and Leap really is a technology agnostic platform. Um, unlike certain companies that work within the energy storage space or the smart thermostat space, or the electric vehicle space, we really provide access to markets. So using the, the Lexicon virtual power plants, right? Each one of our partners is creating a virtual power plant at their customers' homes and businesses, or then the virtual transmission lines connecting them to the market. Hmm. And so in that sense, we can work with any partner, any asset type, any technology that can reduce load at, the, at a home, at a business, uh, regardless if that's them calling customers to go flip switches, whether that's them turning on a battery in their stove, uh, unplugging a, a, a hair dryer, turning down the smart thermostat, discharging the battery, or adjusting when an electric vehicle gets charged. And so we really kind of provide this index play across all available technologies. And we're not picking winners or losers in technology types or OEMs. We make it equally accessible to all. Let's let's run with that example for a second. And for, for me or for, for a homeowner, that's a matter of me actually being engaged in the process versus like automation 
all the building science is plugged in and it's doing it for me. And, you know, the powers that be big brother, not big brother, but chat GBT, whatever it is, is doing it all for me. What's the level of this automation versus the consumer being involved and in actually in the process and doing the thing? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, DR 1.0, as we said, right, calling a diaper facility. I don't know why I keep saying diaper facility. <laughs> I had a, I had a professor in college and we did life cycle cost analysis all the time on diaper facilities. Anyways, uh, that 1.0 of calling and making that manual decision is very much 1.0 and where we focus being a software to software platform is really on that automation. And that really then relies on our partners, right? So we don't touch end use customers. We don't engage with end use homeowners. It's partners of ours, uh, whether it be someone like a, a Generac or a Sonin mm -hmm. that are in there engaging with you on your products and services in your home, as well as your overall energy experience. And the smarter and the more intelligent they get, which is, hey, most customers don't want to think about their energy. So the more they can automate it and build it into the overall service, the more likely we are to have more people participating. Mm -hmm. And the reality is you should feel no impact at your home and really have no idea this is going on you're supporting the grid and you're making money or maybe reducing the cost of, you know, some other service. And so this idea of aggregating at that point of like one touch point for a customer to manage all their energy use is kind of the, uh, you know, the dream. And we're quickly moving forward towards that. And you think about, uh, you know, folks like Alexa and Google and Apple with all their in-home products, Elect, uh, you know, the Alexa ecosystem is that what is your one place to engage your home? And so you can imagine that from a energy perspective as well with uh, various companies in the in the space. I had I had an exchange on LinkedIn yesterday where um, I, I think a, a, a fairly skeptical commenter, you get these from time to time on LinkedIn. I'm not sure if um, if you ever get that, but uh, he said, you know, something like this was one step closer to, you know, big brother coming after us and controlling our, you know, consumption. Is there, are there privacy concerns? Are there, you know, issues related to like, I shouldn't be, um, I shouldn't have to suffer just because the grid's inefficient or just because, you know, and, and you shouldn't know what I'm doing. Like this is what happens behind these walls, you know, is my business. How do you guys uh, overcome that resistance or that, you know, fear of like being spied upon um, when you, as people share out their data? Yeah, that's, it's definitely an interesting question, right? And being one step away from the customer, we have some insight into that, but that's really our partners to figure out. And they're a lot better at, right, client engagement, consumer tech and things like that. But the reality is in the end still, right, a customer has full control of kind of their energy usage and their energy data. And it just becomes a decision, right? It comes down to, well, do you want to participate with the technologies you have in your home? If so, here's the benefit you get. If not, okay, we move on. Um, but we certainly see that if there is not this engagement, how much we're missing out on. I won't say the name of the battery brand or who, but I there's someone in our company gets so frustrated because every time in California, they release a flex alert, which is, uh-oh, emergency conditions are coming. The battery he bought from a, a big solar and, and storage company immediately goes into backup mode. And instead of discharging the battery to take the burden of his home's load off the grid, it actually starts charging because it wants to be ready if there's a blackout. And so now you create this adverse negative cycle, whereas 
if every single battery in the state decided instead to actually discharge to the home and take it off, probably avoid the blackout in the first place. And so, you know, that is probably the most advanced dynamic that needs to be figured out. And, you know, maybe the solution is to start that you only agree if you're going to let, you know, your battery be used only up 20% of it just to see so that you still have 80% and under 90, whatever percent scenarios, that's more than enough to get you through the blackout. And Hey, maybe it actually prevents the blackout in the first place. So all those dynamics, economics, grid support, environmental benefits, as well as kind of just the engagement from society is definitely gonna be the hard part. Um, my engineers hate this. And I think I talked to a lot of product people that hate this. I think the technology is the easy thing to figure out. It is that customer homeowner business business owner engagement that's the most difficult part we had we had a presentation last week with doug uh for the clean energy buyers association uh, which was exciting because we got to demonstrate the real power of granular measurement and verification of demand response and it's fascinating to see how accurately you can measure the reduction of load relative to what would have generally happened within these buildings. And I'm blown away by how targeted and precise that we can be with, with these. And I think one of the you know takeaways from that presentation was actually also how impactful this can be from an emissions standpoint, uh, where in the evening as, and, and, and it's, Fortunately, uh, a lot of the demand response uh, coincides with periods of um, in grid carbon intensity, right? Where we, we're, we're ramping up our all of our backup power plants to supply power during those, these heat waves. And, and so on, on average, our emissions are a lot higher during those hours. But it was striking to me how um, you were almost doubling your impact. Uh, by uh, focus, by procuring, if you're going to procure, you know, some sort of wreck, some sort of offset to your own energy consumption, if you did that through demand response vis-a-vis -vis solar, uh, you're almost doubling your impact uh, in California. And I think that trend is only going to get exacerbated, right? Because, you know, every, like we're kind of ahead of the game here in, in California in terms of, you know, solar in particular. But as we get more and more renewables, we're going to have this situation where we have this overabundance of renewables during the high generation times of day. In Texas, it's the opposite, right? It's the overnight wind where we don't have anything to use it. Um, and then those times of day in which, this, uh, as the naysayers are inclined to point out, the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing. And batteries are going to be part of that solution. But there's this whole other fleet of distributed energy resources that you're tapping into and that the, the impact can really be maximized. Now, how do you guys think about your role in decarbonization? I mean, obviously we've done some stuff together, but is there a sort of a guiding principle within LEAP um, to think about how you want to participate in those efforts? Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And yeah, that was a really enjoyable uh, webinar. Uh, hopefully everyone at, at SEBA enjoyed it as much as McGee and I uh, enjoyed presenting on it. Um, first, I, I really like your point, right? There's becoming this transition, this tipping point from quantity, right? Just produce as much solar and wind to quality, right? When it actually is creating the clean energy that's needed. And 
you know, naturally just like investing tips. If everyone's doing the same thing, that kind of opportunity goes away. And so as solar's proliferated, it's been great. There's tons of, you know, carbon-free electricity, but it's all passive and produced at the same time. And so now we need to find ways on the edges to kind of support 24-7 carbon-free electricity. From Leap's perspective, right? Like one thing we present, we start every one of our company updates. We start all our slide decks with partners. Um, you know, our goal is to decarbonize the world's electric grid. And right, how do you do that is you provide these, you know, edge level value streams of supply to the market. Because if not, right, you have a natural gas power plant sitting there waiting for those high price events when when solar has kind of gone down for the night and wind maybe isn't blowing yet to, to produce energy. And until you can solve those kind of edge components, those shoulder components, you're always going to have natural gas being built. I mean, yes, storage will come in. And as I said, it's not, we're not saying DR is the, the holy grail that solves everything, but it's definitely part of that solution. And so as storage is built and as you get the best areas, right, you, you just have this inherent flexibility already there, right? Like that's the craziest part about it. It's not saying we need to go build it. It's already there. Um, you know, no technology being putting someone's home or business now is not electrified, is not automated, and is not intelligent. And those three things combined create this perfect resource. And so, you know, our goal is really to get as many automated, intelligent, deployable assets out there. We really like to say we we want to provide an economic revenue stream for our partners that they can leverage to go then sell more clean energy products. And so I think the same thing applies towards emissions by getting more out there, enabling more to participate, we thereby can reduce the emissions on the grid, right? Make sure it's more carbon-free electricity generating to support it. And then from like a platform perspective, right? We're helping them monetize that through the, the commodity of electricity sale, the KWH and the wholesale markets. But as emissions become more and more valuable, right? Also having that same platform to allow emissions to, to support that valuation and then hopefully drive even more and more deployments. That, that might've been really complicated all over the place where it's, it's interesting. We have very similar platforms and companies with similar missions and we're kind of approaching it from two distinct areas, but then they begin to overlap, right? As emission, this, you know, carbon-free electricity and the value of emission-free electricity go up. We totally. have a platform where we can already help our partners monetize that. And yes, maybe selfishly, but also from the broader kind of more altruistic point of view of that means they can get more and more of those assets out there that then further support the you know reduction in fossil fuels for electricity. Yep. We call these complementary cash flows. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I like that. Mm -hmm. I should have just said that at the beginning. You should have <laughs> said that. No, it's a good, it's, I mean, it's, it's so, I, I think people uh, who are paying attention to this space realize how much uh, there's, there's a parallel work that's getting done. That's that, and everybody's, you know, trying to highlight the good work that they're doing, but it's, it's actually kind of hard to bring these things together. Right. And, and there's not a lot of stitching happening. And, and so um, one of our core principles is interoperability. We think if we can get all these things working together, the whole can be greater than some of the parts. Um, and if we provide that price signal for carbon on top of the price signal for electricity, um, then we really start to enhance the value of a lot of these assets. Yeah. Um, um, real quick on that. One thing you had mentioned, I think maybe as we were prepping for the webinar, you had mentioned, you know, right now, solar, right? You build a solar 
facility, you sell it in, you, you know, you have the KWH, the electricity commodity purchased by an off taker, whether that's the wholesale market or through a direct agreement, a PPA agreement, but you also can sell those RECs, right? The renewable energy credits of the carbon free electricity. And so, you know, now that we're starting to get market constructs that allow you to sell the, the negative KWH you get from demand response and grid services. Also this idea now that you should be able to get the value stream of emissions through demand response as well. I think there's already like a perfect example. It's not double counting. They're two separate commodities, but as you can start to value stack those different commodities that you're delivering, you know, you start to pick up steam. Totally. And that's the huge, that's the great unlock, right? Like that's, I, and, and my, as, as far as what carbon is concerned, like we think that that's absolutely the path to, um, because right now you like you guys are stuck within like these uh whole you know mostly wholesale energy markets yep. uh the price signal that you sent that gets sent is vis-a-vis a natural gas plant so it's like only when natural gas becomes so expensive uh can you guys even begin to participate which is which is crazy because it's like uh you know let's just say it's you know 85 dollars a megawatt hour and um and and you would you would participate at a hundred dollars a megawatt hour, um, like we are incapable of of recognizing our energy markets are incapable of recognizing the value of carbon free energy being delivered to the grid. To them, a kWh is a kWh, an electron is an electron, and whether it's sourced from coal or natural gas has more to do with its reliability or its you know or just frankly the cost um, or the long-term contracts or the kickbacks that they're getting there there's you know a lot of reasons why we're you know so deeply embedded with these fossil fuels but the fact that you know we're facing this existential challenge of climate change and yet we still have no way of valuing carbon free energy on our grid outside of the secondary commodity market right the rec market which in and of itself excludes demand side resources um, is just mind-boggling is you know if, if an alien were to land on on earth and go hey how are you guys tackling climate change oh we're ignoring it for the most part like what <laughs> oh man that's I've, I've never heard anyone say that before i like that um, but i mean you bring up a great point right like we are bidding into a dispatch stack right where you know you might have wind and solar bidding negative because of uh you know tax incentives, you might have nuclear, right? If you're in a place that has it bidding low because they'll accept any price because the expenses are shut down. And so as we can take our partner's resources and what they consider their opportunity cost and lower that bid by including the value of zero, you know, carbon-free electricity, it makes us more competitive. We get picked up more often and it just, it creates this virtuous cycle. And so- And from a, yeah. a carbon standpoint, it's additional. Right. We look we care about additionality and we, we do all this crazy stuff in the, you know, the world. Like, I'm not going to cut down those trees. I promise you I was going to cut down those trees. If, but, you know, except for the fact that I'm like, that's nonsense. But if you say, like, literally, this is going to like we it's a there's a price here. Right? Like, it's it's not even ambiguous. It's like we bid in at 100. It's 85. We can't bid in. But now we're going to get down to. 75 and now we can bid in and include those resources it's like there's no more clear example of how you can have additionality and impact related to mm -hmm. emissions reductions than in demand response 
Yeah. And that's, I mean, plug for, for you and us, I guess that's why we're so excited to work with Watt Carbon is because we already kind of, we already have that marketplace dynamic setup where it is a financial price that drives how much we participate. And so if we can go in and reduce those prices, we will incrementally get picked up more, deliver more, and therefore reduce more emissions. But just talking about the, the planting trees, part of the articles you should have brought up, I forget the name of that logging company that's now like selling carbon credits, right? Because they what? operate. Uh, have you not heard this? Oh, I've seen a couple articles. I wish. Yeah, this is big fuss of. Yeah, it's a logging company that's going to start like selling carbon credits. And I think they were forecasting like $500 million a year in carbon credits. And I think there's some real uh, uncertainty in how incremental it really is, especially oh. when you cut it down after uh, a couple of years. So anyways, that for next for next podcast. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna rein you two in a little bit. You <laughs> what I what I'm also curious about, Doug, is um, you talked a lot about the the mission behind Leap and you know to operate at scale and with flexibility and um, to maximize impacts. But how about you personally? Like it's it's Sunday evening. It's a, you don't have the Sunday sads. You're excited for the week ahead. What's your personal mission in this work, and what what gets you excited to to keep plugging? I think in every meeting I've been in with you, you've been high energy and super excited, regardless. And um, it's just um, a, it's been a joy to work with you. And I'm wondering what where where that fire comes from, and um, if there's something yeah that's that's congruent with Leap's mission. Obviously there is, but maybe that's a little different and has to do with your personal story. Yeah, definitely. Well, first, it's definitely my low tolerance to caffeine. So even a couple of <laughs> gets me going. So it makes it easy to be high energy. Uh, for me, it's about the ecosystem we're building. You know, part of, you know, being head of business development here is really partnership development. And that's really a passion of mine is understanding how we can work with the company, the great companies out there, the technology, the hardware, the software companies out there. And so it's that kind of unique problem every day in building that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not solving an equation. Uh, I'm building a partnership network where collectively we're going to, you know, slowly tr trudge along until we solve that equation. And so it's collaboration for me. Um, some people would say they get zoom fatigue. I think I love it. I, I don't do well with my thoughts alone. So it's mm -hmm. much better to be on uh, zoom chats with wonderful folks like you, as well as all the various technology providers, developers, software providers out there. I love that. There's not one end all be all solution. It's the networked decision making and, and processing. That's great. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> Can I ask a random question? Fire away. In your, in your link, I was looking at your LinkedIn history. We're often interested in how people come to be in the jobs that they're in. And you were at Clear Result, which, you know, we could talk about, you know, um, that. But you started out in the Department of Energy, or at least you had an earlier job in the Department of Energy, and it says something about the um, the office, the fossil fuel representative to the. And, and I was curious if that was your own pejorative term for the that office, um, or if like there's literally a, an office yeah. of fossil fuels in the Department of Energy. Yeah, well, I'll, I'd like to go way back and talk about how I ended up DOE. But I can try to do it quickly in the. Especially when I was at Clear Result, I did a whole lot of mentoring uh, high school folks. We ran um, uh, internships for college folks. And I always, people say, how did you get an energy? And I say, well, 
wanted to be a rock star, but I had no rhythm and I wanted to be an athlete, but I'm really not athletic. So energy seemed cool. Uh, but I went to Penn State where they have a, an office of earth and mineral sciences. You can imagine Pennsylvania, you know, the, the birthplace of oil. It was very much fossil focused, even though there was two new programs, energy business finance and energy engineering, which ended up being uh, really exciting. So had an engineering degree, but instead of just doing, you know, uh, fluid mechanics, we did fluid mechanics of power plants. Uh, we had a solar energy engineering, wind en energy engineering uh, degree. And so had a nice mix of fossil based as well as renewable based kind of engineering and finance classes. But being an energy business finance energy engineering program, second best in the nation because there were only two us in Stanford, um, DOE actually recruited directly in there and they had a technical career intern program there. And so I had a chance to go in and it was through the Office of Fossil Energy. Um, and mainly there got to work on algae as a way for carbon sequestration. So, and met some great folks through there, started an organization at, at Penn State related to kind of unique ideas around managing sustainability. Um, and then within the Office of Fossil Energy really worked on their carbon capture and sequestration group. And so definitely, you know, it's a, it's, it's a weird thing to talk about. You know, it, it wasn't overly successful. Uh, it was, it was all about preserving the ongoing use of fossil energy. And even worse than that, as I went on after that to, well, maybe not worse, but different than that, went on to work at AES doing freight and fuel purchasing for their international power plants. And I guess the way I justified, or, you know, have to go back is trying to understand how the energy industry operates at scale, right? Where a penny change in a price, you know, can result in tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and so it, it was really interesting to kind of get that perspective from the traditional energy before I kind of moved to not even renewable side, more of behind the meter side where things you're trying to, you know, get one penny from a hundred million people rather than, you know, a quarter of a penny from a hundred million, you know, barrels in, in one deal. So it's just, uh, it's the other side of the coin, I guess. It's, it's a good way to think about it. Kelly, we're, we're uh, way over time here. I think Doug and I could probably talk, you know, talk about this stuff and well, forever, probably. Um, what, what have we missed here so far in our, in our conversation with Doug? Is there any, any last hot button questions that we need to ask him? I mean, I have a big one and it's not really a, a hot button question, but, um, came up on our team and and this this idea of if every building every you know functional operational unit of our built environment was plugged into dr how would that revolutionize the energy system and it's just like this crazy thought that could have major implications and i was wondering that is not a hot button question but if you can answer that question <laughs> in a hot button way um yeah, it's, this was big, big picture thinking, what if scenario, future, yeah. future case. Yeah, being uh, an having an engineering degree, I use my TI 83 plus quite a bit. And it's it's strange. I haven't used it in six or seven years, mm -hmm. but I've been using it maybe three times a week the last month. So I feel like I got to take that out, plug it in. Right. If, if buildings represent what 30 percent of overall energy use uh, in the US and let's assume, right, you can easily curtail on an ongoing basis, 10 or 20% of that, right? So you all of a sudden look at three, five, three to 5% of the overall energy use kind of during peak times. And so you all of a sudden create this buffer and it, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's really impactful because 
the grid is always built, right? Like to the N minus one condition, you're always saying, what's the worst thing that can happen? And then we need to build for the worst thing that happens after the worst mm -hmm. thing, right? If you, if you really understand, because a blackout is not just a, a bad event that's, you know, a negative mark on a utility or a wholesale market, right? There's tremendous economic loss. And we got to remember that electricity is both the commodity and, and a necessity. There's people on medical equipment. There's, mm -hmm. you know, elderly, young that are, have heating and cooling needs and things like that. And so when there are blackouts, people actually die. And so the need to really operate it with this tremendous margin is what requires such a big build out. So by creating even a three or a 5% flexibility, mm -hmm. you can lower the needs for that, or you just actually increase kind of the, and reduce the risk of a blackout by that much. And so. As I said, I, I don't think demand response is the holy grail and all of a sudden everything's free and easy, but it's a low carbon way or no zero carbon way to kind of create what is the most amazing, you know, physical infrastructure of all time, the electric grid, that much more dynamic. So maybe not uh, the answer you're hoping for, uh, but I like to be realistic in, in what we do. So That's perfect. Uh, Doug, it's, it's been a, a pleasure to have you on the Watt Carbon podcast. Uh, we will welcome you back at some point and get into like the other 10 questions that I was going to ask about uh, wholesale versus retail energy markets and where things are hard and international growth and all of the rest of these things. But we'll save that for part two uh, sometime down the road. We really appreciate you taking some time out and, and are excited about our partnership with, with you guys. Uh, really kind of um, changing the landscape for how to procure clean energy um, to include DERs, DPPs, whatever you want to call them. Um, and uh, it's exciting to see the work that LEAF is doing on that front and, uh, and a privilege to work with you. So thanks for having uh, having faith in us and, um, and uh, coming in and sharing some of your story with us. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. And Kelly, thanks for keeping me and McGee a little bit on track here. And you know, next time I can go through my fundamentals of oil refining class and, and show you my final there. Uh, it's, it's quite a story. Anyways, uh, it's, really, it's really been a pleasure. Um, it's been fun learning and exploring the industry with you, uh, Kelly and McGee, and looking forward to what Leap and Walk Carbon can uh, accomplish together. So, Perfect. Thanks, Doug. Okay. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone.